This is an ABC podcast. Greece and Turkey share a long and complex history. Relations between both nations are tense, with historical animosities and ongoing geopolitical disputes a constant reminder of the fragility of peace. In the absence of diplomacy, conflict and displacement have characterised the relationship between the residents of both nations. Even now, 200 years after the Greek War of Independence from the Ottoman Empire, mutual disdain and distrust are firmly etched in the fabric of daily life for many. What will it take to move beyond the shadow of history, to forge the bonds of trust and to steer the relationship into calmer waters? How do we bridge the divide of ethnicity? What role can the Greek and Turkish diaspora in Australia and around the world play in breaking down the barriers of fear and distrust and building bridges to embrace their differences and celebrate their similarities. I'm Paul Barclay, and on this Big Ideas, these are some of the questions considered by Greek and Turkish Australian scholars and community leaders in the Bridge Over the Aegean panel discussion at the Greek Festival of Sydney. Moderated by Dr Helen Vatsikopoulos from the University of Technology, Sydney, the speakers are... Dr. Adonis Piperoglu, the inaugural Hellenic Senior Lecturer in Global Diasporas at the University of Melbourne. Dr. Birchel Cevik Kompienye, a lecturer and convener of the Turkish Studies Program at the Centre for Arab and Islamic Studies at the Australian National University. Mehmet Saral, President and Founding Member of Advocates for Dignity, a not-for-profit organisation which advocates for human rights with a special focus on Turkey. And Nicholas Dumanis, Associate Professor in the School of Humanities and Languages at the University of New South Wales. He begins with a look at the power and politics of the Ottoman Empire. Empires, by definition, include different groups. Uh, So difference was normal. And the Ottoman Empire was no different to any other empire. It was an Islamic empire, therefore it recognised people of the book, which included um, Greek Orthodox Christians and Jews and Armenians in particular. They had a recognised place within the official Ottoman system, broadly known as the Millet system, which became formalised in the 19th century. So each group, the Greek Orthodox Millet, or the Rum Millet, Romans, meaning Greek Orthodox Christians, uh, had their own particular nation or community within the Ottoman system, which was legally defined and uh, had its own courts and administration, etc. Of course, in an Islamic empire, uh, other non-Muslim groups were subordinate in terms, well, unequal in the eyes of the law. And there were attempts to change this towards the end when the empire was shrinking and needed to consolidate its it's lo- the loyalties of those subordinate groups as the empire was under siege, but that came very late. But um, it, they had a defined place within the system. Now, how did it work out in practice? Despite having legal disadvantages, they also had many advantages, um, particularly once the European powers start to make force the Ottoman Empire to accept 
special privileges for their own nationals, which the Greeks often took on and used them, legal, legal privileges, uh, which they used in courts uh, to their great advantage and trading privileges. So what you find in the late stages of the Ottoman Empire is that the Greek Orthodox, the Armenians, and to a lesser extent the Jews, start to uh, prosper a, a great deal in the Ottoman system. So, you know, it, it's, compl- it's a complex story. Bourdieu, you teach Turkish studies at ANU. Yes. <laughs> um, what is the, I guess, the historical canon about that period uh, of the Ottoman Empire and then conversion to the Republic itself. How is it seen? A big loss, uh, a tragedy, or just evolution? Well, when you say historical canon, I think it's a difficult question because there are many historical canons, right? So I, I think uh, the first challenge for me when I'm teaching Turkish history is to overcome my own uh, education in school, which was my my first experience of learning history, uh, which is still uh, the same, I think, uh, more or less uh, in Turkey, about representing the Ottoman Empire as mainly a Turkish endeavor and dealing uh, with non-Turkish elements within that empire as problems that the empire dealt with. But this is largely overcome now in historiography. Um, No respected historian will hold these kinds of uh, arguments. I guess um, one one of the things that I emphasize is that the empire was multi-ethnic and multi-cultural uh, in every sense. And when we say multi-ethnic, ethnicity uh, became only uh, something that we discuss in the late 19th century, even early 20th century. Before that, there are religious differences. And identities are um, quite porous. The boundaries between those religious identities are porous. As uh, Nicholas mentioned, uh, these differences, this millet system becomes formalized only in the 19th century. Uh, But even then, ethnicity, especially uh, around an understanding of a religious identity being paired with also a linguistic, cultural, uh, separate background that is, you know, between, for example, Turks and Greeks are mutually exclusive. This is an invention of uh, late 19th century that um, is so much a part of the way we think about the world being made up of these nations um, that are separate, there are clear-cut differences between them. Uh, This is uh, one of the biggest challenges uh, when I teach Turkish history, to overcome this understanding of um, people being uh, sort of put into those um, categories. Well, Andonis, how has this happened? I know that Greece and Turkey uh, straddle a fault line between the East and the West. So how have they become racialised to be opposites um, it's a good question, and, and I'm just procking my brain here to then maybe lead to thinking about the diaspora 
as distinctly racialized compared to Greeks and Turks in a European context. So you're right to point to this kind of fault line, the intricacies, the kind of axle point between East and West. And so the making of modern Greece in contrast to the making of modern Turkey, two very different types of nationalisms that emerge in the, for Greece in the, in the 19th century and, and later for Turkey and the kind of demise of the Ottoman Empire in the 20th century. But here we get a kind of interesting picture of then how perhaps Europe looks at this region. And so Greece has a significant role in the making of modern Europe. It has a significant role in the sense that the idea of Greece has a profound allure to the, the cradle of Western civilization, and this is put into contrast to uh, Turkey. Of course, though, we know that this distinction between an old Greece and a new Greece, an ancient Greece and a modern Greece, perhaps is uh, false within the kind of territoriality of the modern Greek nation today, and that, that there are many pockets of Turkey to the Levant as well, and, and even across the Mediterranean to North Africa, where there are, there are the influence of Hellenic culture across this very dynamic, extremely fluid, very mobile region of the Mediterranean. And so we can kind of think about this space as a tension point a kind of place, this region, Greece, Turkey, the, now I'm using the names of our modern nations today, right? But we could think about a term like the Levant, the Eastern Mediterranean, could think about Ottoman worlds. The way then that people identify with space is perhaps separate from the intense emotional nationalisms that have played a role in how we might think about ourselves today. And just going to the diaspora element, so to touch on this racialization is a very important thing to think about in the sense that uh, you know, an influential work of post-colonial studies being uh, you know, Orientalism. So thinking about Turkey and beyond as this kind of othered space, this different space that doesn't have this kind of racialist connection to, to the West not the case for the Greeks. But what did that mean for when Greeks or Turks migrated to Australia was very different. And so they were racialized as white, but not white enough. White, but racially distinct from the British, from the Irish, from the Scots, from, from the kind of British Anglo-Australia. And so I think that then we can start to think about when we're talking about building bridges is the way that these two groups from a similar region were amalgamated, brought into being thought of as being similar, the same type of racialized people as white but not white enough. And this forms certain types of identities and solidarities that live with people of my generation today. And so for want of a better word, the WOG generation, if we can call it that, means an amalgamation of a whole host of different groups from this region, extending, say, from Italy all the way, Greece, Turkey, Lebanon, Egypt, Palestine. What I'm saying here is the way then that people were grouped by the Anglo-colonial gaze has brought about particular forms of inter-ethnic transcultural becoming that have significance to people of my generation today that I think goes beyond that stringent, strict 
kind of nationalist framing of who we might be. Nicholas, I want to bring you in here now. 1821 was a big party for the Greeks and uh, 1922 is the wake. But many people say that is when Greece was created as a nation, 1922 and not 1821. What do you think of that? And just tell us how significant 1922 was for the Greeks. Well, I don't agree with that claim. Uh, it, it, the Greek nation did come about in, eight, in the 1820s, 1830s. A real, it was a revolution because something rather unique takes place that a, a nation is created in the, in the southeast corner of Europe and it is of international consequence. And the people who fight for this entity are conscious of doing something completely new. That's why it's revolutionary. What is it? It's a nation state, which is a very, very new concept. Okay, the United States is, a, is the oldest nation in the world, as far as I'm concerned. Greece is close, not, you know, it's not number two, but it's close. And it's a very revolutionary concept. And the people who live in it who used to be Romi, who are identified as Greek Orthodox, people's identity was their religion. You were Greek Orthodox, which meant you were Rum, which others, to others meant you were Greek. And if you're a Muslim, Turk meant you're Muslim. How did that then become ethnic? As we said, ethnic is something, is reasonably new as well. And that becomes something that uh, becomes solid by the late 19th century, but it's happening around the world. It's one thing I want to make sure that this discussion doesn't do is make our discussion seem unique. It is part of a global trend. There's big pressures on everybody to find new identities to identify as an ethnic something. And, had, and this new identity takes from the old identity. So to become Turkish, become, you have to be Muslim, but there's other things you take with you as well. Greek, Greek Orthodox, but also the classical tradition, and that comes together as well. Now, sorry, you said about 1922. Well, when Greece was created, the people who ruled Greece, or the elites, um, many of them decided it's not a real Greece until we have Constantinople. The Megali Idea, the great dream of recreating the Byzantine Empire focused in Constantinople. But Greece could never, on its own, grab Constantinople. It, it tried to get there. But it was the, the political elite decided that this was what the Gr Greece was about. That was the great project of Greece. And uh, it, therefore, it was a project of expansion and war. And finally, what, what happened in 1922 was that um, there was a big overreach. Greece invaded what is now Turkey, made a lunge for Ankara, failed in 1921, got close but failed, and then the Turkish nationalists regrouped, beat them, and it destroyed the dream of the Megalia there. And to symbolize that, the sacking of the Greek and Armenian sections of Zmirni, Izmir, which was awful, particularly as everybody was watching. It was, it was a tragedy. There were many, many tragedies over the last 15 years in that part of the world, many, but this one, too many people saw it, therefore it looked, uh, it, it was publicised around the world. It was a profound shock. And it was a profound shock for the Greek people in particular, because it, well, for the Greek state, it ended the Megali there. For the Greek people, it meant the end of 
Greek life in Asia Minor because they were all kicked out after that. So that it is a, a serious watershed in Greek history from a number of angles. And of course that led to the Treaty of Lausanne and the exchange of populations. Uh, how do you teach this to your students in Turkish studies? Because there were uh, Turks in Greece, uh, especially where I was born in Florina, there were a lot of Turks who had to leave. And the same thing for the Greeks. There were more Greeks that got displaced as well. So how is that period of history seen by the Turks? Well, that period of history uh, in memory, although not in living memory anymore because it was 100 years ago, but um, the, the period between the Balkan War, um, the Balkan Wars um, starting 1912 to... Um, the end of uh, the First World War, and actually the, the, the war against the Greek army uh, between 1919 and 1922 is called in Turkey, in Turkish history, uh, the War of Independence. So it's quite ironic that, you know, Greeks have their uh, history of independence from the Turks by, you know, at war, and so do Turks have their uh, history of independence from the Greeks. Um, and it's quite ironic. And also something to mention, uh, Nicholas um, referred to the, the Rumi identity. So, so in Turkish language, t still today, we make a distinction, we draw a distinction between um, Greeks of Greece, like uh, contemporary Greece, and Greeks of Anatolia. Um, and Greeks of Anatolia in Turkish are called Rum. And, and it's quite interesting the fact that Ottomans themselves, the Muslim, as in the Ottoman Empire, also called themselves Rumi, of the Rums. So um, a, a linguistic acknowledgement, I guess, of the fact that um, Ottomans did not have any illusions about purity of uh, Turkish uh, ethnic identity at all. Um, so coming back to um, 1922, and, and I'm from Izmir, I, I was born in Istanbul, but I grew up in Izmir, uh, the place where uh, the Turkish War of Independence started and ended, uh, tragically. So it, it has a very particular resonance to uh, my city, the Izmir, and I'm sure uh, there are people here uh, who, who are descendants of people of Smyrna. Um, it, is a, uh, it is a mixture of uh, nationalist pride and uh, of that hard-won uh, um, territorial uh, integrity, I guess, but also sad. And that distinction between Rums and, and Greeks all of a sudden disappear in language as well, when, and we understand the violence of the events which burned the city to the ground, and along with its uh, history, and, uh, but the culture is still there to a large extent, and that's where the, the uh, I guess, ambivalence towards that part of history comes from, because the culture is still there and it's acknowledged. Izmir is still referred as the infidel, and um, despite having lost uh, all of its, you know, pretty much all non-Muslim population uh, in 1920-22. Well, Mehmet, your family came from Trabzon, Trabizundas in yeah, Greek, yeah. Uh, a very, very famous, beautiful medieval city. 
And a lot of people listening who come from Pontus will be very sad about the um, exchange of populations. I remember talking to an old woman who had to walk from there to to escape, you know, the oncoming trip. So in your family, um, how, how is that exchange of populations viewed and and um, knowing that there were your family and, and also your 25% Greek? <laughs> how does that rest with your family? Well, to be honest, uh, I think... Uh from a family perspective, most probably don't think of the of that part of it. Uh, the way that uh, Turkish history explains it was that this had to happen to create peace in the neighbourhood, in the, in the areas that these things happened. And Trabzon had a very high Greek population, so the Ottomans brought a lot of Turks from other parts of the empire into Trabzon to balance the population. Uh, so, uh, you know, from Syria, from other parts where there were Turks. Uh, so the the way the family looks at it, I mean, my father was a nationalist and my mother is not educated. It would be on the side of the Ottoman Empire. Whatever the Ottoman Empire did was the right thing to do. Uh, is the way they would look at it. Uh, but from a historical perspective, I mean, a lot of innocent people were uh, taking from one region to another and through no fault of their own, except their identity. Uh, just through association uh, of being Greek, um, that's really sad. That sort of saddens me, you know, when you have to enforce people to move from their homes. I mean, you may run the country, but why make the people, innocent people, relocate, keep them where they are? You know, they're happy to be there. So it is sad. Uh, they had nothing to do with the war. They were just, just families living there, innocent families. So I, uh, yeah, I'm totally against uh, that type of exodus. Yeah. So, talking about people having to leave their homes and trauma, I want to bring you in, Andonis, Cyprus. Uh, Cyprus is the big thorn in the side of Greece and Turkey and uh, your family uh, emanates from Cyprus. Tell me about um, what it's like to, to see what's happening in Cyprus and to know that, you know, you probably will never be able to return. Yes, thank you. I... Before I do, just just a little return to 1922, um, which gives us a kind of an Australian angle to this to this intense population exchange. Is that a very significant early Greek settler, Christos Frelingos, Christy Frelagos, the first president of the uh, Hellenic Association in Brisbane, he fought in in the Turkish Greek War. Then, in which the Greeks lost, and then the population agreement, if you will, uh, which was kind of overseen by broader Europe to see this exchange of one million Greeks to settle into Greece and about half a million less of Muslims from Greece to go in, into Turkey. And so uh, he thought it was a good idea, using his status and using his particular authority, to go to the London an Australian High Commissioner and advocate for the settlement of some of these refugees to come to Australia. He thought that they would be good agriculturalists. He made the argument that they would be able-bodied farmers for Australia. He made the case that they would be good settlers in a racialized context, that they would fit into the contours of white Australia. This is exactly the type of settler that Australia wanted to cultivate the land, to extract from the land, to profit from the land. Um, he then made deputations to various state premiers and uh, the Secretary for Home Affairs and 
on every turn, they palmed him off and rejected him. Rejected him on the basis that Australia at this time in 1923-1924 was only considering the settlement of British people. Okay, so th there is a funny, weird irony at play here. One is that uh, the rejection is made on the base that we will not help these people um, because they are not the t right type of person. And this, this kind of goes back to what Nicholas was saying earlier. In tandem with this kind of ethnicized nationalism, this idea of race is at play. And so this weird paradoxical contradiction of how do you make a, a new democratic society that is homogenous because if you believed in the absurdity of race science, which was popularly believed at the time, then you thought that there were lesser and higher peoples and then you wouldn't have a, an equal society as such. Um, anyway, that's just a side note on, on that um, population exchange and that it triggers us to think, imagine if, right, in the 1920s, there was a conservative assisted passage to settle those refugees on Australian land. Um, that didn't happen. Sorry, Helen. To the Cypriot issue, this is an emotional issue in my family. This is a tense issue in my diasporic experience. But I just give you a little emotional story and I'll wrap up, is that when I was a child in 2003, uh, early days of high school for me, I show my age, the borders were opened up. You could officially cross the border between South Cyprus and North Cyprus. The only country, I think, still to recognize what is called by Turkey the uh, Republic of Northern Cyprus, Turkey is the only country to recognize this place. Otherwise, this place is a very weird region in geopolitical context because in, in many ways it's unrecognized space in international governance. And so um, I have this memory. I grew up in Canberra and we would frequently travel to see family in Melbourne. My mother came here in, in the 1970s. Um, her uncle facilitated the settlement of a lot of gr Greek refugees to come to Melbourne. And so I have this memory of saying someone, someone's from the family has been to the north and they took a video camera and they filmed the village. Let's, you know, everyone come, let's watch the video, let's see the village. And of course, it was extremely emotional. We're all huddled around this little screen. Um, people are seeing, you know, their fence posts being moved and taken to be in front of uh, someone else's house. Doors are not what they used to be. People are seeing the differences and their memories of their childhoods are coming back to them. And, and this was a kind of uh, intense moment for me as a child of the Cypriot displacement. I remember, you know, uh, as a you know, teenager, I remember thinking, I really want to go to this village. This person's gone with their camera and they've seen the village that my mother's born in, but I want to go. Um, many years later, I was on exchange in Europe on a study trip. Um, many of my friends were Turkish. We shared, we shared similar foods and, and um, we shared connections. Anyway, people were traveling to Turkey on this trip and I really wanted to go. Um, but I knew that if I went and I didn't lie to my mother, or if I yeah, didn't lie, that this would hurt my mother a lot. Hurt her in the sense that she would feel extremely uncomfortable 
with the fact that I would return or go to a country in which that supports the continued occupation of where she's from. And so this is something that I continually grapple with. This is something that I think many people of a younger generations of of the Greek diaspora, particularly from Cyprus, have to think through. And it's an ongoing issue. And I just wrap up by saying then that the Cypriot Greek experience, in comparison to perhaps the broader post-war Greek migrant experience in Australia, is very distinctive. It's distinctive because of this particular displacement that occurred in the 1970s. It's distinctive because Cyprus, the, the kind of roots of this type of ethnic division is based on British colonialism in the Eastern Mediterranean. And it's distinctive because, as my parents, my father is from Gasolores and mother's from Cyprus, you know, it's distinctive because Cypriot Greekness is distinctive. So I kind of put a plug in then to think about the various modes by which we are Greek, the various modes by which we are Turkish, and how then that is separate from kind of the statecraft of Greece, the statecraft of Turkey, that being Turk, Turkish or being Greek, means many things to many different people across space and time. And I think it's important to remind ourselves of that um, when perhaps the boxed way that the national definitions of who we are constrains us, limits us, and often leads to conflict and displacement. Bonjour, this is where I bring you in. Um, <laughs> how, how do you talk about Cyprus to uh, your students in Turkish studies, and is there really any hope for families that have come from northern Cyprus, the north part of Cyprus. Is there any hope of decolonisation? Mm -hmm. Well, I hope so. Um, I think I think there is, and uh, Cypriots themselves uh, have raised uh, their voices um, over and over again in the last, more intensely in the last 10, 15 years. I think it's not too late uh, for, for Cyprus to be reunited. Uh, we've seen partitions in other places uh, with uh, British colonial heritage. Cyprus is not uh, unique in that sense. But I think um, re reunification of Cyprus probably uh, would require decolonization of that uh, administration of Greece, of those differences, because what we see uh, in the recent negotiations, the issue that is unresolved is the, the sharing of power. They talk about sharing of power and how that issue can be resolved without getting rid of that, you know, remnants of colonial administration, that legacy. And that's what I mean by decolonization, not just Turkey walking away from uh, their interests in, in Greece. And from a Turkish perspective, I guess, of course, the discourses are about, you know, protecting the, uh, the lives of security of Turkish uh, people. So, you know, again, uh, there's a tendency to absorb um, the Turkish-speaking people of Cyprus as, as Turkish. In that, in that Turkishness. And uh, I guess for Turkey, Greece is a site where its battles uh, with Greece are, are fought. 
And I'm not an international relations uh, expert, so I don't know uh, how to resolve those issues of international law um, in regard to maritime borders and so on. But I guess uh, it's not just about Turkey withdrawing uh, its hold on Northern Cyprus. It's also an internal process. South and the North need to somehow coordinate their, uh, you know, voting in uh, their pro-reunification governments and, and with a clear agenda on how to uh, settle those differences. And maybe a change of government in Turkey itself, like a very, very different government, which is where I bring you in, Mehmet. Do you think it will take a change in government uh, to resolve a lot of those outstanding issues and also contemporary issues... Um, are you welcome back in Turkey? No, I'm not. I'm, I'm uh, unfortunately blacklisted. Uh, I can't go back to Turkey as we speak uh, because of the fact that I'm pre-vocal and anti-Erdogan regime in Turkey. Uh, so I, you know, very openly have criticised him. And uh, I remember some of his uh, the first ten years of his regime. He was very pro-democratic, and I liked what he was doing. He was embracing the Greek. Uh, uh, Orthodox population within the Turkish boundaries. He was uh, allowing the seminary schools to continue in Greece to be in, in Turkey, sorry, to be taught in Turkish because the Greek uh, seminary schools, the students were learning in Turkish language, uh, the, the Greek Orthodox religion, and bringing a Greek Orthodox uh, priest uh, to Turkey to teach uh, the students in Greek was very difficult because a lot of the kids didn't know Greek. They only knew one language. They understood Greek but couldn't write in Greek. So uh, it was very important that the seminary school should continue in Turkey, and Erdogan supported that, and he allowed that, and he also allowed uh, the Greek church in Trabzon to be open for the Greek public to come and see and visit. Uh, and all these things, they were all positive things that were happening, and I was supportive of, of him at that time. But in 2010, he made a speech where he said, uh, democracy is only until you get to the station. To stay in power, you need to act differently, and which is dictatorship. And dictatorship kicked in. He became a dictator from 2010 onwards. And uh, he's, uh, he's ruling with an iron fist. And uh, any remnants of any opposition within Turkey is uh, destroying uh, very, very rapidly. There is a big civil society movement called uh, the, the Gulen movement or the Hizmet movement, which means basically service to humanity. And uh, this uh, movement has been uh, picked on by the Erdogan government because this movement had a lot of media outlets in Turkey. They also had uh, judges and they had police control. They had a lot of public servants working in many segments of society uh, with the ultimate aim of embracing everyone and helping everyone, creating a, a, a peaceful country where everyone is equal and everyone is embraced. So they, the Alois the Greeks, the Armenians, everyone, you know, bringing everyone together. They had, you know, sessions, uh, newspaper and journalist foundation that they established. They used to bring people together from all faiths and cultures and backgrounds to create harmony, social harmony within Turkey, particularly towards the Kurdish people who were very much picked on by the previous governments of Turkey. So uh, all of that, unfortunately, was uh, when Erdogan was doing his ministers and his son and other people in, uh, amongst his uh, circle were doing corruptive work. Um, some, one of that was uh, selling gold to Iran. 
even though there are sanctions against Iran. He sold gold and the money that came in shoeboxes, in cash, uh, he was giving the shoeboxes of money to the ministers. The Gulen movement, who controlled some parts of the police network, uh, investigated this episode and decided to go into the houses of these ministers and their sons, etc., who were keeping this money, and including Erdogan's son. And big uproar happened when that occurred, and he decided to arrest everyone. He said, how can I get rid of these people? These people are a problem for me. And uh, the only way you can do it is if you claim them to be terrorists, because everyone in Turkey loves them. So, uh, the coup. Exactly. So, he, a, plan, a coup was planned. The coup was planned by the government and his allies. And uh, this coup, as you know, historically in Turkey, there's been five coups, including this one. And if you look at anyone who succeed, becomes successful after a coup, it's usually the people who plotted the coup that become successful. So uh, the Gulen movement was arrested, put in jail, anyone who belonged to this movement. Many of them escaped to Greece, uh, 30,000 of them. Some of them d uh, drowned in the Aegean Sea and the Evros River because it was cold and windy. But rather than being jailed, jailed with their children, they decided, I'd rather cross into Greece as this, the Greek people embraced me. So 30,000? 30,000 Turks, Turks are refugees in Greece at the moment? No, at the moment there's 1,000, but right. a lot of them went into Europe and other countries from there. But Greece was the initial uh, meeting point. Right, uh, so, for, for so who were they? What were their professions? What were their jobs? Well, they were judges, policemen, uh, bureaucrats. There was lots of people from different, different uh, very well-off, affluent people. And uh, when they went into Greece, uh, Greece's economy is not you know, powerful enough to support uh, all these people, uh, but uh, what they did was allow them to come into uh, the country and, and to embrace these people who, were, uh, who would be jailed if they stayed in Turkey. And uh, the Red Cross helped uh, to give some funding to these families. And uh, these families also received funding from the diaspora around the world. So that's how they survived. And then eventually they applied for asylum in uh, Europe and uh, got into Germany or other countries in, in, uh, in the European Union. So uh, this is a, is, a, is a big problem in Turkey at the moment. And unfortunately, it's gone back 25 years uh, when it was being very democratic, very, you know, uh, going towards European Union. It's now gone backwards 25 years. And to recover will take a long time. I don't know what we need to do, but next year's elections, hopefully uh, the people of Turkey will wake up and, and uh, elect someone uh, who's more democratic. It most probably will be a coalition. I don't think it will be a one-man show anymore. But we have to get rid of the single leadership, single rulership of any country, to be honest. Any country that has a single ruler uh, tends to be a dictator. And we need to get rid of that. It is not good for the neighbors either. Uh, uh, Turkey hates Greece at the moment. Turkish prime minister. Yes, we're going to talk about that in a minute. Yeah, we'll talk about so, that. So an election uh, mm. at a time when the country celebrates 100 years of nationhood. Um, is he going to win? or? Well, uh, according to the, a lot of this uh, poll, polling that I've been seeing, he's got 30% of the country's votes at the moment. But you never know with Erdogan. He, he could do a state of emergency again and uh, continue the rulership uh, just to stay in power. Uh, so we need to watch carefully this space and hopefully that he... Uh, can I, so can that I make an ironic point here? Yes. Is that Greece itself had these problems with authoritarianism and corrupt practices in the polity for a long time and it was ended 
because of the fiasco in Cyprus in 1974, the military was so humiliated by engineering uh, that catastrophe that it had to withdraw from politics. And since then, we've uh, Greece at least has had a open uh, public realm civil society. The or the military cannot come back in. Um. I think in, in, in Turkey there is no chance of military coming back in uh, at any point, I think. But we'll see what the elections show us. It brings me to back to the Aegean. And uh, the seas are not calm in the Aegean at the moment. Uh, Greece and Turkey are at loggerheads. Uh, in 2019, Turkey submitted claims to the United Nations for exclusive economic zones that are in conflict with Greek claims to the very same areas. Uh, what's this about, Nicholas? Well, it's all about the search for energy and, you know, where, where every country needs its energy and it, it will go to great lengths to get its source of energy, particularly if it's nearby. Um, the problem with for Turkey is that um, it's got a lot of Greek islands that that uh, line up along its eastern co western coast and two significant islands which which line up along its southern coast which impede its direct sole access to uh, the eastern mediterranean and um this this is a an issue which will will fester um it's it's along with the refugee problem cyprus it's the energy the access to whatever the eastern mediterranean has to provide um, the I'm not, this is not my bag, I'm not an international relations specialist or a maritime law specialist, but uh, I can see how this has to, this is an issue that has to be resolved through cooperation, but not brinksmanship. Now what I fear, look, these issues between Greece and Turkey, uh, where um, we have these phases where the, whoever's in power cuddle up, so we have a great period, and then it always goes back into a, a loggerheads phases. We're in one of those loggerhead phases, and I, I don't want to make light of that because these can turn into something much nastier. Wars can come out of nothing, even if everybody's got the best intentions and they don't want anything like that to come about. They can get locked into something, just like you know. Uh, Putin can't get out of Ukraine. He needs to come home with a, with well, a victory. Exactly. But a year ago, who would have thought that Putin would invade yes. uh, the way he did earlier this year? So, as you say, how dangerous is the situation in the Aegean at the moment? And could something like that happen out of the blue with an election and Erdogan perhaps feeling insecure? Initially, my, my first impulse is, given what... Uh, the mess that Putin has got himself into in finding war as a solution to some kind of problem, that the other dictators will think twice about doing something like that because of the consequences. But like I said, uh, they can get into a tangle. And, and my favourite book on the first, origins of the First World War is, is a book called The Sleepwalkers. The Europeans knew what they were getting into. But they sleepwalked into that absolute mess anyway. They, they kind of didn't want to get into it, but they were drawn in. And that's the worry I have about um, a precipitation of conflict, that it might brought, bring about a war in the Aegean. And Donis, what do you think? And you also have family who come from islands very close to the Turkish coast. They must be watching those warships um, coming past. 
Well, there is no family left there, let's say, um, today. But um, again, uh, similar to my colleague here uh, as a historian, I'm, I'm not too well versed on the contemporary dynamics, but I will say this in comparison to Ukraine. Both Greece and Turkey are NATO nations. That will play a significant role if conflict in a militarized sense was to, to rise, you know, to, to get to that point. I think, though, for all the pomposity, for, for all the kind of grandstanding that may come out of the Turkish president's mouth, um, we have to, I come back to the difference between Greece and Turkey and Turks and Greeks. I mean, think about the types of solidarities and exchanges that have occurred, say, since the, Seri the Syrian war and the refugee crisis that came out of that. You know, people swimming across from mainland Turkey to the islands of Greece um, it has created certain forms of cross-cultural exchange new ways of understanding difference that goes beyond the president's uh, rhetoric. Further to this, though, I think that um, what we also see here, and, and I mean, Nick just mentioned Cyprus, the refugee issue, and energy. And I would add another one there, and that, that's kind of tied to this panel, and that is the, the unresolved historical legacy of these past disruptions, conflicts, displacements, and violences. And that they live within us, they live within our communities, they live within our nations. And so both nations, both leaders of nations, but also I think the diaspora has a role in resolving these lingering heritages of pain and loss. And I think the best way to do that is to look at exchange of solidarity, of empathies, beyond the hardline view, we hate them, they hate us, you know, to, to bring it down into a nutshell. And so I think the diaspora has a role to play in facilitating a type of um, communality, a type of coexistence that recognises difference and celebrates that difference. And uh, there's a role then for the ways that the diaspora returns to speak to uh, ways of thinking past this, these tensions. Um, I might kind of just finish by saying then that there are, there are stories of that coexistence in that Ottoman world that are worth highlighting and worth remembering and worth thinking through. And one thing that I've come across my, uh, my research in the last years or so, this PhD thesis that came out of Flinders talks about milk mothers um, in Cyprus, that uh, a Greek mother may relied on a Turkish woman in the village to breastfeed their child. You know, think about the intimacy of that type of exchange at that everyday level and how that was perhaps uh, common in those times before the violence of nationalism separated these people. And so there are ways that we can think past these things of how, how it's very possible 
to live together, how it was possible to live together. And it may, that's why I kind of move away from the headlines of er, that Erdogan pushes. I mean, that it's very important to critique it and analyze it and, and um, by no means dismiss him uh, because there's, there's some scary stuff there. But um, on, on the other side, we think about how people actually live. Um, there is room to prevent this, I think. I, I agree that uh, you know we have to unravel those myths that have built up over time. And the fact that we are here today having this discussion, I think, shows that in the diaspora we are looking forward. And at this point, I'd like to ask members of the audience if they have any questions that they would like to ask of the panel. Put your hand up and a microphone will come your way. Uh, the question I wish to put, especially to the Turkish uh, members of the panel, the foreign policy of Turkey is of a bipartisan nature. Both the opposition and Erdogan support the idea of uh, Turkish rights, the, uh, the blue Aegean, uh, the blue homeland in relation to the exclusive economic zone and the continental shelf. How do we go about in Turkey of changing this attitude? Because there are three major problems. One is Cyprus, one is the recognition of the Christian genocides, and one is the international law um, agreement that has to be reached in the in the Aegean. I just want to back around the Blue Homeland Doctrine is has been uh, supported and put forward by members of the Turkish military, and in essence, it says that Turkey has been caged in Anatolia and needs to branch out into the Black Sea, into the Aegean, and into the Mediterranean, which sounds very expansionist. So, Mehmet, would you like to take that on? I think Bougie would answer oh, that. Uh, would I? I don't. <laughs> well played. <laughs> well played. Um, those issues, those international uh, relations issues, could be resolved. Uh, I, I'm not quite sure uh, how, in what framework, but uh, probably one of the worst uh, strategies that. Um, all parties have recourse to is to isolate the other, trying to isolate the other. And um, we see the, the tensions around Cyprus also uh, increasing when Turkey feels isolated, becomes much more aggressive in their hold to uh, Cyprus. And that's why I was referring to um, those international maritime borders issues be resolved in you know priority, I guess, and that would make things a lot easier uh, in Cyprus. And within Cyprus, I think, uh, as you were saying, you know, how the divisions um, happen roughly the same way, but I guess um, those um, ethnicity becoming those ethnicized identities, becoming the basis of people's rights is a dangerous concept that we've seen uh, in Cyprus and, and other places, um, India, in, um, in Palestine, Israel, and other partitioned um, states. I think that is the legacy that I was uh, referring to earlier, uh, to be absolutely abandoned as uh, basing people's rights to property, access to 
um, their rights based on their ethnic affiliation, which is a construct, as we said, you know, um, in the case of Cyprus, it's pretty much um, a late 19th century, uh, early 20th century, by the, the British occupation, uh, has left the island. It became rock solid uh, distinction, which is between the Turkish and the, and the Greeks of the, the island. And I think that is a process that can be reversed, hopefully. Yeah, it's, a, it's, a, it's a difficult uh, topic, very hard to answer that, but uh, I think uh, this should be something generational change uh, in Turkish thinking. It, it, it's not going to be something done overnight. Uh, the Turkish uh, politicians who are in their 60s and 70s will never change. Uh, but there is a, a young movement of uh, people coming through. And the, the Gulen movement had that uh, educated lot of people who were transforming Turkey, enriching relationships with the other, and forming, uh, you know, bonding and strong, strengthening the relationships with their neighbours. The zero problem policy with, with, with our neighbours, that's all stemmed from a lot of the... Uh, panels that the Gulen movement organized in Turkey in the 1990s and 2000s. Um, the reason, I mean, they're all arrested now, they're all in jail. But when there's a change of government, these people will come out. They'll come back from uh, other countries back into Turkey and hopefully revive the thinking in Turkey. A lot of work has happened in this, in this area. And uh, eventually, uh, the Gulenists are apolitical. They have nothing to do with politics. They don't want to have anything to do with politics, but they can change the mindset of of the population, the mass population, through, you know, academic forums, through panels, through uh, media, uh, people can change. So it requires maybe uh, the young who are in their 20s and 30s who are stepping up into the into the role of politics. Uh, they will maybe change uh, the mindset, and and that those things will happen. It won't happen overnight. It'll take maybe a couple of decades to change. Mehmet Saral from Advocates for Dignity. You also heard from Dr. Adonis Piperoglu from the University of Melbourne. Dr. Birchel Chevik Kompienye from the Australian National University. Dr. Nicholas Dumanis from the University of New South Wales and moderator Dr. Helen Vatsikopoulos from the University of Technology, Sydney. I'm Paul Barclay. That's it for this Big Ideas. Until next time, bye for now. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.